how do I systematize my practice area? So I think that is a concern is, are you going to niche into something that is really hard to build an assembly line around and design yourself out of? Designing yourself out of a business creates more room for possibility and focus on the direction of the firm. That said, one of the things that I've also learned is that a practice area is not a niche. You're listening to Personal Injury Mastermind, where we give you the tools you need to take your personal injury practice to the next level. Joey Vitale, owner of Indie Law, is an expert on creating an automated law firm dedicated to strict processes at its core, designed to be stress-free. His Chicago-based trademark law firm has over 100 five-star Google reviews and has grown over 14 staff members in just five years. On today's episode, we discuss building an assembly line so owners can design themselves out of the day-to-day the merits of micro-specializations, authenticity, and truly understanding your offer. I'm your host, Chris Dreyer, founder and CEO of Rankings.io. We help elite personal injury attorneys dominate first-page rankings with search engine optimization. Being at the forefront of marketing is all about understanding people. So let's get to know our guest. Here's Joey Vitale, owner at Indie Law. In my family, all of the boys were expected to go to construction school to join the concrete family business. And when I spent my first summer loading and unloading trucks and was like, this is not for me, then my dad, God love him, was like, well, there's already a doctor in the family, so go to law school. I was like, okay, great. So I went to law school kind of as like an undecided graduate degree. That's awesome. Kicking things off, I want to talk about you know brand building and yeah. your brand has real what I would say real authenticity. Mm-hmm. When someone visits your site, your Instagram, your personality and your presence is front and center. When you're thinking about personal brand building and and promoting your business, what's your thoughts on it on being mm-hmm. front and center like that? I appreciate that as almost as a follow up question to the first question because for me, so much of brand building came when I realized, oh, why did I go to law school again? Like, why am I a lawyer? Do I really like this stuff? I I spent a couple of years, again, without a lot of intention, just kind of finding myself at a mid-sized law firm in, in St. Louis. Great people. But I was like, is this really what I was meant to do? And luckily, right when I was thinking, oh, should I go out maybe and try my own thing? Or should I find a new job? Like, should I be waiting tables while I maybe try and use my law degree in a creative way? I found a great business coach who really started the conversation with, well, who would you love to work with? Tell me more about your personality and how can we build a law firm based on your strengths instead of it continuing to feel like you're fighting this uphill journey of, trying to be that great shark in a, in a courtroom that I'm not. That's so interesting to have that guide. Talk to me about that. Like, how did you find this business coach? How did you know that this was the person you need to talk to? Because you had a little bit of uncertainty. How did that kind of map out? Yeah. I, I mean, I look back and I'm, I'm really grateful that I hadn't had a lot of experience in the business world yet to kind of sensitize me to all of this stuff. I'm meeting more and more business owners and law firm owners who come to me with, you know, which coach should I work with? I've got these great options. I don't know who to move forward with. 
I didn't realize that business coaches were like a thing. So when I found someone who first rose her hand was like, I can help you. I was like, oh, great. And I just jumped on the opportunity. I just got really lucky that she was also a really great business coach. But when, when we sat down, she was telling me about her past and, and asking me my question, you know, questions about myself. And at some point she said, so it seems like you're pretty open to practicing law in just, you know, a way that's different than the typical courtroom environment. And I said, yeah. And she said, well, have you ever thought about working with grandmas on Etsy? Curveball. And I was like, uh, no, but tell me more. Uh-huh. And so she was like, well, it's totally your call to pick which niche you want to run with. But if you would be at all interested in building a reputation for working with Etsy store owners, she said, I've spent the past few years getting to know creatives and artists, and I've been introduced and invited into all of these different Facebook groups. There isn't really a lawyer in these groups right now, and there are tens of thousands of Etsy store owners. And I was like, okay, let's do it. So, so that was really my first niche was being the main go-to lawyer in this super niched, almost hobby business set of, of Facebook groups. That's so interesting. And I had, I had kind of a similar story with uh, Mike Papantonio. You know, he was kind of joking about personal injury attorneys dropping pantlets from the sky and hopefully <laughs> picks them up and how he kind of niched into mass torts. And you went to that, that blue ocean and not right mm-hmm. into the red ocean, which there's all different types of strategies. Then you came to indie, indie firm, mm-hmm. very specific type of law. So Tell me about indie law and then tell me like how you came to that specialization and how you niched into indie. So indie law now is a, a trademarks first and, and really trademarks only law firm. What happened was about a year after starting the version of my law firm as it exists today, a few things happened very similar uh, timeframes. It was all around the same period of about a year after I launched my firm. So I would say maybe it was really three things that happened in total. Number one, for the first time in my professional career, I was actually working with clients directly and figuring out what their pain points were on the ground. And I was starting to see that even though most of them weren't coming to me asking about trademarks, a lot of them really needed that and were coming to me months later saying, hey, I know I didn't ask you about this, but you should have told me that I needed it because now someone's sending me a cease and desist letter or someone filed an Etsy claim against me and I might lose my entire store. So we started learning those lessons. I also was getting more and more uh, business owner friends saying, hey, you should really start creating a, a course for business owners who can't afford you. And then the third thing is I had this really serious series of panic attacks and I'm fine now. But when I was really in the depths of a really scary time in my life, I was just, I was worried. I don't want my family to have to take care of me. I don't want to keep stressing my wife out with whatever this illness is. And oh, shoot, I have a business to run now. And how can my clients get taken care of? And I remember when I was in the hospital for weeks, thinking about what I could do. And those books like E-Myth, and those other like business Bibles came to mind as what can I be doing that would be like quote unquote good for business in terms of building systems and processes and like an assembly line 
of what our law firm could provide that would also be really great for my mental health. And I'll never forget my last day of outpatient therapy. The doctor who had been treating me the whole time said, you have to do everything that you can do to create a stress-free law firm for yourself. And I was like, oh, that's great. So what happened with the culmination of all of that was, what if we take indie law and we, we focus just on trademarks? Because that seems to be, to use your great words, a, a, a blue ocean right now that not a lot of people in this niche are going after specifically and exclusively. How can we build an assembly line around it so that if anything happens to me or, or if I want to take a vacation, the business can, can serve those clients? And if we focus in on trademarks, how can we start creating courses and things for businesses who might not be able to afford to work with us one-to-one? Thank you for sharing that. And I want to, I really want to unpack that. So the first thing is you were very intentional. So kind of, mm. it reminds me of that good to great Venn diagram, that purpose, passion, profit, you know, like, mm. like, like, Hey, passion, not, not a stressor, a purpose to help people and profit. So it was very interesting that you unpacked that. The other thing kind of taking a step back is was it the opportunity to work with the Etsy store owners that then gave you the awareness that this opportunity for the, the trademark laws existed? You know? Yeah. So what was really interesting is the more we helped Etsy store owners, the more we realized that there is this risk around trademarks that is particularly relevant to the Etsy store audience, which is if you don't have a registration for your trademark, for your business name, you don't have any evidence to point to if it ever gets called into question that someone else might own certain things. And so Etsy, like many platforms, has this rule where if someone claims trademark infringement against you, they can easily file a report for free. You can respond to it and negate it. And then the, the platform basically says, okay, you parties can duke it out. What was starting to happen on Etsy, though, was the evil geniuses who were also Etsy store owners were realizing, oh, if I just have me and enough of my friends file lawsuits or file claims against our competitors, Etsy will just assume, oh, they got this many claims against them, so they must be doing something wrong. And so there were a lot of Etsy store owners coming to me saying, you know, we've already received, received two of these claims. We can't afford to get another one because most of our sales are coming through Etsy. Wow. It's like a coercion. Like- right. And it's, it's, it was really sad because none of these Etsy store owners individually really had the budgets to defend themselves in court if it ever got to that point. It's so interesting. And it, it, I say this quote a lot. My audience is probably going to roll their eyes, but it's like, uh, <laughs> the, the don't fall in love with your product or service, fall in love with helping your, your client. Right. So you really identified a pain they had and you, you went all in to help them solve that pain. And, and for our audience too, like I went into legal, I didn't, you know, I'm not a lawyer. I didn't know the different sub areas of the law very well. I didn't know the extreme demand for PI marketing and saturation. Right. So then I niched down further and now I see even further opportunities to niche down even further. So I guess my question here is hmm. let's take a red ocean you know, personal injury law. I mean, it is competitive, right? I mean, people are just attacking each other on daytime television and all the airtime. Should they consider to niche down further 
and, you know, to maybe trucking or motorcycles or, you know, what are the pros and what are the, what are the cons in the way that you see niching? Because you, you do give up other types of opportunities when you, when you embrace a niche. So kind of what's your thought process behind yeah, that? Yeah. I mean, man, the more I talk to non IP attorneys, the more I realize again, how, how grateful and lucky I am that when we decided to go into trademarks, we're like, oh, this seems like something that we can really systematize pretty easily. And, and we can. And I, I feel for attorneys who are like, how do I systematize my practice area? So I think that is a concern is, are you going to niche into something that is really hard to build an assembly line around and design yourself out of? That said, one of the things that I've also learned is that a practice area is not a niche. Explain, expound. That's very interesting. And I, I so appreciate the, the compliments that you gave around like doing your research and feeling like you know us. We are getting clearer and clearer around who our client avatar is, who our ideal audience is. And just because we do trademarks doesn't mean that that informs who our audience is. Like not every single business owner that needs trademark help is our audience. And so I'm having really interesting conversations where when you niche down to a certain type of client, you could actually, you might end up with a really specific niche that has multiple practice areas. Like you become the it law firm to take care of all of this type of client's needs. When you know how to solve the pains of a unique audience, it is easy to become the trusted source with a defined brand voice. To that end, Joey explains the concept of magnetic marketing. I'm learning more and more about this concept of magnetic marketing, of, you know, the more you want to attract your really ideal people, being magnetic also means that you're going to repel people and you have to lean into that too. And you have to be, in order to to make your ideal client read your email, see your website and be like, oh my gosh, this guy is talking to me. There has to be an audience of people who see this. They're like, uh, that's totally not my jam. And I think that's so interesting. You understand that the introspection is as I'm going to be right for some people, but I'm going to be wrong for many and just be yeah. okay with that. I, I think it allows you to speak to them in a much deeper level and really understand their pains and who they are and where they congregate and how to get in front of them and all those types of things, which leads me to my next point is, you know, we're talking about building credibility as a brand. You do something that's a little different. And I wanted to see if it could be applied to the PI space, or if it doesn't really fit, you offer whole masterclasses, right? So for attorneys, you know, specifically personal injury attorneys, you know, thinking of adding a masterclass to their marketing, is this an, an opportunity here? Because we don't know when individuals are going to get in car wrecks. You oh, know? That's so interesting. Yeah. I really like that question. So one of the things that we're trying to do as best as we can is figure out where our audience is currently at on the buyer's journey without us coming to the rescue anywhere and maybe informing them or making them aware. And what we have found is that when it comes to trademarks, a lot of our clients, a lot of people in general, have some working knowledge of what a trademark means. It's out of all of the different legal topics, it's one of the more common things that are in the news. 
right? Like people kind of have this idea of what it means to be trademarked. The problem is that most of what they think about it and how they use it in everyday language isn't accurate legally. And so we've found that it seems to be continuing to be true is that a webinar is helpful at getting their attention at like they learn more about this. And by the end of the webinar, they realize how much of what they thought about trademarks was wrong. That's really why for us, a webinar seems to be working really well is because there's that kind of thought reversal that helps them see that they're a good fit for us and that we can help them. In terms of PI, you know better than I do, but yeah, I I don't know if there are kind of milestones on the buyer's journey where they have to have certain thoughts be reversed or Mm -hmm. um, having things that they think they know, but they don't really know about how this works be made available to them. The other thing that makes trademarks tough, I have a, a colleague whose wife, who's also a lawyer, wanted to get into trademarks. She maybe put four or five months of work into building up that practice area in addition to what her firm also does. I, I met him at a mastermind a few weeks ago and he was like, she stopped because it was too hard for her. Like people weren't buying. And I was like, yeah, I get, I mean, we've had to put a lot of legwork up front on the marketing side to warm up an audience, to be ready to work with us. The webinar is a good piece of the the funnel, right? You can capture mm-hmm. the email. Uh, it gives you something to market. It is an event. Like you can, you can actually schedule mm-hmm. it out and promote it for a set period of time. The thing that's interesting and I keep going back to is like, I'm trying to think of how this could be applicable to the audience. Like, you know, I could see it right. for a tort, like maybe you know, like a Roundup or a Zantac or something like that. Like people maybe have this preconceived misconception about the circumstance and maybe they're like, oh, well, I'll join this 15, 30 minute webinar uh, or masterclass. And, oh, I'm totally wrong. I have a case. Mm, that's a really interesting idea. Another thing that, again, you can speak circles around around me with all of this, uh, but I wonder if there's ever a good opportunity to do more of a referral partner pointing webinar saying, if you're sending us referrals and it seems like you're sending us bad fits or you don't really understand what we do, here is a kind of one-to-many training we can do with all of you so that you better understand the types of good fits for our firm. I think that ties in and we, we talk about Morgan and Morgan a lot, you know, the, the size matters, mm. biggest PI firm. One of the things they do well, and I I creeped their careers page and I was looking at all their, you know, postings and they have these referral ambassadors where they introduce their value proposition to other law firms to get those cases that they're not signing, right? They're like, send us all of that. I think that's a super strong value proposition. So that for them, a webinar would be perfect because it's one to many. Mm -hmm. Very intriguing. Yeah. So I think if you're a personal injury law firm and you're you're wanting to maybe build a uh, a local like a community with other other lawyers, it could be it could potentially be a good tactic, a networking tactic, as opposed to maybe trying to just catch someone that was in an auto accident uh, because of timing, and, and that might be a more broad, right. top of mind uh, awareness type of component for marketing. Really interesting. The other thing is too. Your book. So I, I want to dive into your book. Okay. You so first of all, your title really got me. The business growth advantage: How to run your business in one hour a week, crack the social media code, and make limitless income and impact. So first of all, I immediately go to Tim Ferriss. I'm like, okay, so Joey's saying, 
you know, instead of four hours a week, he's saying one hour a week. Right. And immediately <laughs> I'm thinking this is great. But, you know, tell us a little bit about the book, who it's for and, and you know, what readers can expect. Yeah. Part of the inspiration for the book was I was talking with some friends. And again, when people ask me about my origin story, I usually start with that series of panic attacks episode, just because that that informed so much of, of how the business has grown since. And I was talking with some, some lawyer friends and they're like, Joey, how much legal work are you actually doing a week? And I was like, oh, maybe like a month or an hour's worth a week. And they were like, what, how are you doing that? So, so, so that's where the hour a week came from uh, of really how I got to a point where I'm only spending an hour a week doing like the client work. And since I started writing the book, I've, st- I've kind of taken that as a challenge of, okay, how can I get the other parts of me running that business down more and more? And it's been a great challenge because now that, I mean, I can tell you're one of these people too. Like at the end of the day, if I didn't have any work to do, I would still come up with some way to, to help people. And so the, the beauty of trying to design yourself out of the business that you're in is that it allows you to just focus on, okay, what's next? What's a, what's a higher value way that I can contribute and help people? And up until the point where I was writing my book, so many of what I was working towards was just like doctor's orders. Like I'm supposed to be doing this for my own mental health. And then uh, one of my mentors and, and now really good friends pulled me to the side and said, hey, your story is really interesting because the steps that you took for your mental health are the same steps that I would recommend any business owner if they want to sell their law firm. You've eliminated a lot of waste because you're specific and people Mm -hmm. talk about efficiencies and improving processes and things, but they don't go on the waste direction. And what I equate that to is the niche. Mm. you're not doing everything, you're eliminating that and you can really create a very specific process for the one thing and better so than other individuals. One of the reasons why when we started dipping our toes in this, we just kept walking into the water was because I realized from a financial standpoint, just the math of projections gets so much easier to do when Whenever someone buys from you, you know exactly like what that price point is. And one of the most helpful exercises that, that we now go through is, and it's really a mindset shift too, is the, the goal in our business is not like to make the most money in the world. It's to hit a certain revenue goal, which would allow for a certain profit, take home, team pay, everything else. And so it's not like we're striving for just as many sales as possible. There's a specific number that we're reaching towards. And there's a real sense of scrambling if you don't have a, have a niche, a, a specific kind of go-to default package or, or I, our sense of how much money comes in every time a new client buys. Yeah, that would allow for forecasting and predictability on a different level. And taking this a step further, I just kind of wanted to just get your general thoughts on just how you see leverage, you know, in terms of people and time, you know, there's, there's people leverage, there's, you know, there's tools, there's AI, you know, are you saying that for you, you've been intentional to maybe have less people 
but maybe lean itself more on technology and AI? Like, the, mm. like how do you see this all play into just leverage in general from a time yeah, man, perspective? That's a really, really good question. This might be changing, but up until now, our strategy has been how can we hire a, a high number of overseas generalist BAs? How can we provide them with processes and steps to follow and really have like an army of generalist workforces that, I mean, are all putting in usually less than 40 hours a month. Because again, in the same way that I had my issue and I was stuck in the hospital for two weeks, we now have a team of, of 20, over half of them are overseas, very part-time in their hours, but it's allowed for a lot of great coverage. So people can go on vacation, they can get sick with a whole lot of anxiety. And I know that we're starting to enter in this new era that's coming where it's going to be better and better for us to keep our eyes peeled for specialists to do certain things. But because my team has done such a good job up until this point of really committing to strict processes for everything, we haven't really needed to bring specialists in-house. There's a lot there. I haven't, uh, that's the first time I've heard of it from like a coverage perspective, which I really mm. love the different time zones and things like that. Because always, it seems like when we're talking about international or whatever, we're just always going directly to, you know, pricing arbitrage and lower wages and things like that. Thinking of myself, I've always thought, geez, you know what, you know, we have our guys that, you know, work eight to five or eight to six, you know, they, some of them work overtime, but like, what if I did a 24 hour, like what if after six, then the next team checks in. So now I'm doing mm. twice the amount of productivity versus other SEO agencies are still doing the nine to five. Then it gets into like investments and hourly usages and things like that. But I, I like what you're saying there around coverage, because then when somebody messages you at night or on the weekend, well, the coverage for an international employee, that might be their regular working hours. Yep, totally. One of the blessings and the curses of being in the practice area that I'm in is I don't really know of other trademark law firms that are specifically just doing trademark law that are reaching for seven figures, multiple seven figures a year. Whereas I know just the way that projections happen and the environment is with personal injury, that isn't as much of a, a reach for a, a personal injury attorney to hit that type of a space. And so because of that, when I started, I was very aware of the fact that I was limited in terms of budget and how many people I could hire. And I was able to find really great people to bring on at an administrative level to start and then promote them over time, again, under a very part-time basis. And I'm just saying this, if it happens to be valuable to anyone, but we now have a really strong leadership team where the entire leadership team is part-time contractors. I'm still the only full-time teammate on the team. Wow. That's out of the box. I would say, you know, we're not talking about top line and, you know, there's, there's profitability and there's top line, right? So I know a lot of personal mm. injury firms that show like a really great top line, but maybe don't have profitability or, or accruing a ton of debt 
yeah. um, not managing cash flow properly. And so I would say that, you know, those are some other things just to take into account. But that's that's definitely interesting and a different way to look at it. I was listening to Get a Grip today, the EOS accompanying, and it was talking about they had a member on their marketing staff that was not an in-house member. And they made it work. And I thought, oh, that's really intriguing. And it's just, if you have those clear communication lines and responsibilities that it could work. Yeah. And I mean, there are challenges to it. We definitely had different employment law attorneys look at what we were doing and says like, yes, like these are definitely contractors. But if XYZ changes, then like talk to us again, because, you know, we want to be, especially as a law firm, very mindful of treating contractors as contractors and employees as employees. But the other thing is, the other reason why I think that came as an idea for me was because when I started working with Etsy store owners, I've gotten to know a lot of like creative solopreneur types on my way to building the firm. And the more that we were starting to see growth with the firm, the more I saw that, oh, there are people around me who are business owners themselves, are more entrepreneurial but would love to have a sense of security added to the top of that. And what would it look like if we created positions of like contractors who maybe they run their own like virtual assistant company. Maybe they are a a full-time photographer, but they want to do this on the side. Like how can we take people who already know Slack and Google Drive and LastPass and stuff and can just really quickly kind of fit into the systems that we're creating. And there was a period where that's worked really well for us. The foundation of a solid social media campaign is having a comprehensive understanding of your offer. Here's Joey's take on social media and upcoming lawyers. I'm starting to see this newer wave of lawyers who are amazing at social media, who are crushing it on TikTok. Before we get to social media, though, we need to make sure that you have a really strong foundation in terms of your offer, your niche, that your clients are happy with you, that when you're hopping on the call that you're converting well, you need to make sure that you're fulfilling well, that the sales department is running smoothly. And then we can start looking to social media because we really want that to be a layer on top of what else is going well. One of the biggest mistakes that I see across the board I'm very sensitive to this because I understand why lawyers make this mistake, but there are like zero calls to action on most law firm social media posts. And it's because you don't want to be that lawyer. You don't want to be that, you know, person on the billboard that you kind of hate. And whenever you drive past them, you're like, oh, I'm, I'm doing it different than you. Uh, but you need to make sure that you are letting people know at the end of your content, what's the next step? How do they get a hold of you? And, and don't hold back when you create that space to invite people to take the next step to work with you. The other layer that I recommend building on top of that is trust-based content. Again, a lot of new lawyers are entering in the space. It is very cool for me to see so many like new lawyers entering in the trademark space because there are way more business owners than I could ever serve myself. And what's great about trademarks is you can do that from anywhere. So it's a really sexy practice area for newer attorneys right now. And a lot of people, are, I say that all because a lot of people, especially trademark attorneys, are making the mistake of, on focusing on like why trademarks 
And it, that's the point where you have to decide, you know, do I want my marketing to really be positioning me as a expert in the field? Like I know what I'm talking about, or do I want to position myself as the social proof law firm that is worth more? And you can see all of these re- reviews we're talking about, you know, testimonials and, and Google reviews and this sense of, oh, this many people have said yes to working with this firm. So I should too. This shift from why this practice area or why this topic to why this law firm can be huge. Very And then on top of that, you can really stack on the attraction stuff, like being fun on social media, being captivating, whether you're just writing or whether you're on video, there's, there's a lot to unpack here, but going after those more micro commitments and getting people to, you know, it's not just, did my post get likes today? And how many calls did I get? Right. It's, there's so much wiggle room inside there of, you know, drop a comment below if this is true. Uh, One of my best performing posts ever was Brussels sprouts. Yes or no. (laughs) Uh, That draws a line there. So no, but okay. (laughs) Right. Uh, Right. (laughs) um, Yeah. So I, I think a few things. So, so, you can say there's a lot of time different ways you could refer to this, right? You could say no like trust, awareness, consideration, uh, yep. conversion. Uh, I think no like trust is the easiest, and I think I see a lot of personal injury firms just just doing all trust and maybe not mm. any of the the no or engagement side. So they're just posting all the reviews and case results and everything like that. That could be a component of it, but maybe right. hey, maybe you need to build and and have some humor and draw in some of those things that appeal to a lot of larger audience before you just go in for the jugular and try to get them to oh, hire you every totally. Every time. And again, I, I know that you can speak in circles around me with all of this, but one thing that we found is when you think about the buyer's journey, and you know what a lot of people think of as like a sales funnel or even a marketing funnel, it's like what are those touch points? that are closer to the sale that you can optimize first? How can you validate that that's working well and then go one rung wider? Ultimately, you get to a point where everything's pretty dialed in and you just get to have fun at the attraction level or the no level. I think that's the missing component is to have some of those that that bring out the personality too, that's fun, that appeals to a broader audience. I think that's where the nomenclature, even from a content strategy, gets all kind of misconveyed in terms of blogs or pages or practice area pages. And if I can just share a story real quick, I started working with a voice coach a few years ago who, not like a singing voice coach, but like a let's unpack the way that you speak so that you can show up more powerfully online type of voice coach. And when we started working together, she went back and she went through some of my past videos that I had posted on social media, me giving legal tips And we're watching these videos together. And then she would pause it and be like, tell me what you were thinking right there. Like when you stuttered or you kind of pulled away or kind of rushed through something, what was going on in your head? And after a little bit of a back and forth, I realized that so many times when I was creating videos or when I was about ready to talk about the law, instead of thinking about having my client or future client sitting in front of me and me speaking to them about how I can help them. I was thinking, what if another lawyer sees this? And what if they just rip apart what I'm saying because I'm not getting the words right? And 
my voice coach really helped me see that I'm never doing my clients and my, my followers a service when I'm getting caught up in what if another attorney sees this and disagrees with what I'm saying. And there are so many times, especially I would imagine as a personal injury attorney, where you do have to be thinking about things in that way. But when you're showing up to create content on social media, you have to turn that off and get into a totally different headspace of the way that I like to think about it is how do I want people to feel when they're watching this video? And how can I keep that feeling state that I want to convey at the forefront of what I'm talking about? And the words will just come. And so now what I get to is usually when I want to do like a quick outline on a five or a three or a 10 minute video, I'll just write like three main words that I kind of want to hit. And then I'll get a sense of, okay, do I want people to be excited about this? Do I want people to be scared about this? Do I want people to be stressed or grateful or whatever? Like, what's the feeling that I want to convey? And then I just put like those three words on the post-it right next to the webcam. Wow. That is a huge nugget there from just the EQ, the emotional challenges mm. perspective, just even like how you emphasize different words and how you, the, the, the speed in which you say them. And, and I think could basically make the content more appealing to the person consuming the information. I think that's, geez, that's something I'm, I'm immediately going to start doing. And when I do my scripts for video, I've never thought of that. That's, that's such an amazing tip that I really want to highlight. Thanks, Chris. I just, I'm sorry to interrupt. I just want to say if anyone's yeah. interested, I'm happy to share my resources. My voice coach, Tracy Goodwin, I don't know how much capacity she has these days, but she works with a lot of attorneys and she's fantastic. Thank you for that resource. We'll definitely link her up. And, awesome. um, and Joey, this has been awesome. I could take speak to you all day. You know, you know, one final question here, you know, what's next for Indy Law and the business growth advantage? Oh man. Well, the, in terms of Indy Law, we plan on by the end of 2025 to get to a place where we are filing 500 trademarks a year. And it took us five years to file our first 500 trademarks. So we're, we're really excited about hitting that big milestone. It's our big mission to just be the best brand protectors that we can be. And so we just see that as a really great like value-aligned goal that we can be shooting for over the next three years. And then with the, the business growth advantage side, the book should be coming out hopefully sometime next year. In the meantime, we just launched a brand new service called Global Vetted VAs, where anyone, especially a law firm owner, if, if you feel like you need to start delegating, you don't know who to turn to, Global Vetted VAs is a really great new option for law firm owners. We're not an agency, but we'll connect you with five high quality overseas VAs that we've already vetted. And you can pick out of those five, which one, or maybe even two you want to hire. When thinking about the future of your practice, come back to your why of being a lawyer. Build a law firm based on your strengths. And remember that a law practice is not the same as a niche. To find the niche that is right for you, work with your clients directly to identify their pain points. Joey saw a unique problem with his Etsy clients and built a firm that exclusively works with trademarks. And when you become crystal clear on who your ideal client is, what their problems are, you have found your niche and become the it lawyer for your audience. On the buyer's journey, identify the milestones of thought and patterns that need to be changed. Once you have worked out all the kinks of the life cycle of a client, see what you can do to automate and replicate. Build a firm that gives you less stress and more time. 
I'd like to thank Joey Vitale from Indie Law for sharing his story with us. And I hope you gained some valuable insights from the conversation. You've been listening to Personal Injury Mastermind. I'm Chris Stryer. If you like this episode, leave us a review. We'd love to hear from our listeners. I'll catch you on next week's PIM with another incredible guest and all the strategies you need to master personal injury marketing.